Hello everyone. I'd like to read you an extract from an infamous police report. Brian Howe, aged three, was covered with grass and weeds. He'd been strangled. Nearby, a pair of broken scissors lay in the grass. There were puncture marks on his thighs and his genitals had been skinned. Clumps of hair were cut away. The wounds were bizarre. There was a terrible playfulness about it, a terrible gentleness, if you like, and somehow the playfulness of it made it more rather than less terrifying, said Inspector Dobson. Brian's belly had been signed M with a razor blade. These were the actions of Mary Bell, who shot to infamy as one of the youngest killers in the UK. She committed these horrendous acts aged just 10 years old. In her diary, she's reported to have asked the question, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Now, can you imagine someone so young having those kinds of thoughts? Now, here's the key question. What would you expect a person who had committed those crimes to be like. You probably wouldn't imagine a child killer. Back in the 1880s, at the time of Jack the Ripper, police were attempting to profile offenders, in that case, citing surgical skill and knowledge of anatomy as possible offender traits. In, for example, 1932, Dr Dudley Schoenfeld gave the authorities his predictions about the personality of the kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby. In 64, Boston police used a forensic profile to help identify the so-called Boston Strangler. There's, there's lots of examples I could draw on, but the point I want to make is that these profiles are not an exact science. It's just one of a number of techniques in the forensic toolbox, if you like. Let's consider in a little more detail the role of practicing forensic psychologists. So the job of a forensic psychologist largely relates to the assessment and treatment of criminal behaviour. They work not only with prisoners and offenders, but with professionals involved in the judicial and penal systems, as well as victims of crime. The role that they have principally involves criminal profiling. They'd also be really heavily involved in providing research-based evidence to develop policy and working practices and giving evidence in court. The psychologist would also advise uh, things like parole boards and mental health tribunals and be part of a bigger disciplinary team designed to rehabilitate prisoners. Salary-wise, for those that are interested, isn't too bad. Trainee forensic psychologists in Her Majesty's Prison Service start on roughly roughly 24,000. Fully qualified registered psychologists can earn between about 1345-ish thousand while senior psychologists, they can earn up to about 95000 a year. NHS salaries are at a pretty similar level. So what role does forensic psychology play? Well, I think the easiest way to address that question is to look at the, the broad categories in which forensic practitioners would be called upon. Certainly one that uh, most of us would think of as in the courtroom. There's a famous phrase, voir dire, to speak the truth. It's the process of determining suitability for jury service or assessing witness competency in a hearing. If a trained psychologist doesn't think said person is fit in either case, then their testimony, if you like, let's say, can't be used. The same goes for custody cases and determining which, if either, parent has the capacity to best meet the needs 
of a child in question. Forensic psychology is predominantly used as an investigative tool. So, for example, in polygraph and brain fingerprinting, basically detecting signs of deception using neuro-linguistic programming. As I said earlier, uh, we're dealing with matters that are, you could say, subject to extreme scrutiny. So the results are not wholly admissible in court. It also, forensic psychology also has a role in hypnosis, in psychological profiling suspected or known perpetrators, in testing for mental illness, so assessing sanity, mental state, at the time of a crime, and even competency to stand trial, and also in cases of severe drug addiction, so ultimately determining whether it's led to neuroses or psychoses. I'd like to discuss some of the so-called disputed techniques. So, for example, the polygraph or the lie detector, a mainstay of mainstream TV and media shows based on catching someone out. Now, you, you might think that they give valid, reliable results. You might find the whole thing farcical. They start with this control question, followed by a directed lie, and then what we refer to as a guilty knowledge test. Now, there are selected physiological activities that are simultaneously recorded from at least three systems in the human body. Rubber tubes are placed over the examinee's chest and abdominal area to record respiratory activity, and two small metal plates attached to the fingers will record sweat gland activity, and blood pressure cuff is also used, or a similar device, to record cardiovascular activity. Now, controlling sweat levels, I'd imagine... It's quite a difficult thing to do, but being able to control heart rate and breathing rate, well, I guess that could be a little easier to manipulate, with some skill that is. Results are inadmissible in most courts of law nowadays, but that hasn't stopped some people, and particularly in our social media driven society, to use it to their advantage. The convicted murderer of Scottish schoolgirl, of a Scottish schoolgirl, has actually become uh, the first prisoner to post a video on YouTube showing him apparently passing a lie detector test to prove innocence. Luke Mitchell was given permission by prison officials to release a 16-minute film where he denies killing his 14-year-old girlfriend Jodie Jones in 2003. The the 24-year-old consistently denied the murder. Jodie was found dead on a remote path with her throat slashed and cuts to her eyelids. Uh, cheek, breast, abdomen and forearm. She'd been on the way to meet Michael, who was just 14 at the time, shortly before the killing. Her body was later found by him near his home in Midlothian. Now in the footage, he's seen being questioned by an independent expert from the British Polygraph Association. When asked, were you present when Jodie was stabbed, he replies, no. And when questioned, did you stab Jodie on the 30th of June 2003, he again replies, no, and further denies knowing for certain where her body would be found. It was understood that him, so Mitchell, releasing the clip on YouTube, it was designed to persuade the public that he was wrongly convicted. Another disputed technique employed by forensic psychologists is that of brain fingerprinting, basically having an EEG or electroencephalogram. Brain fingerprinting uses brain waves to test memory. So a crime suspect is given words or images in a context that would be known only to the police or the person who committed the crime. 
So a suspect is then taken and tested by looking at really three kinds of information represented by, on on the, the uh, machine, three different coloured lines or traces, if you like. One to represent the information that the suspect is expected to know. One that relates to brain activity when information is provided not known to the suspect. And one to represent information of the crime that only the perpetrator would know. This method does have its critics, and like the polygraph, it isn't counted on as reliable evidence. In the case of forensic hypnotism, investigators try and access a subject's deep, sort of repressed, if you like, memories of a past crime to help identify a suspect or just to fill in details of a case. Since hypnotists may lead subjects to form false memories, this technique is still controversial in the forensics world. So what are the main goals then? Now that I've discussed these disputed techniques, what are, the, what are actually the main goals of something like forensic profiling? Because there are many that dispute its evidential value, but it has proven useful in a number of cases. Well, it can provide police with a, a social and psychological assessment of an offender based on a crime scene. So things like age range, race, religion, employment, education, even marital status. It can provide police with um, a psychological evaluation of belongings found in possession of the offender. So there may be souvenirs of a crime, fetish items or pornography perhaps. And it can provide interrogation suggestions and strategies. So for example, uh, officers might need to come on strong or maybe soft depending on who they're questioning. That might in turn give a sense of control almost to some perpetrators. Although some do argue that triggering a response like this might cross a bit of an ethical boundary. So which crimes actually need profiling? Well, it's typically used in cases of serial rape, serial murder, child molestation, even workplace violence, serial arson, and in cases of threatening uh, communication. Now, the important factors to consider when you're compiling these profiles would be things like the type of crime, the type of victim, manner of death, if death has occurred, evidence of rituals, evidence of trophies or souvenir collection, and the personality of the offender, whether they appear organised or not. So from the premises of an offender, you can learn a great deal, particularly if the person is organised or disorganised. You can look at a crime scene and deduce the same thing. Is that crime scene organised? And if so, does that give a clue to who the offender might be or why the crime scene is as it appears? Arson profiling is an incredibly fascinating area of study because you tend to find two classes of arsonist the jealousy motivated adult male and the would-be hero now there's a case from 2018 where the offender quite clearly falls into the former of these two distinct categories two men were given life sentences for murdering four children in a petrol bomb attack at the home of the perceived favorite older brother with whom uh, these perpetrators were feuding. Zach Bollin, 23 years old, and his friend David Worrell, who was 25, was 25 at the time, uh, both were convicted of four counts of murder at Manchester Crown Court in May 2018. Each one was handed four life sentences, and Bollard told that he must serve a minimum of 40 years. Worrell got, I think it was a minimum of 37. So... The trial had heard that in December 2017, the men had removed a fence panel from the garden of the house in Salford, had smashed a kitchen window and then thrown in 
uh, too lit petrol bombs. The fire had spread to block the only exit from the first floor to the ground floor as the Pearson family had slept upstairs. And that was Demi, who was 15, her uh, brother Brandon, 8, and sister Lacey, who was 7. The prosecution said it had basically escalated from a series of tit-for-tat attacks where windows had been smashed and even a wheelie bin outside the house had been set on fire at one point. Interestingly, the victim's mother had called the police at least five times in the weeks before that attack. So moving from arson and how profiles have been uh, used in that to another kind of crime. Now, in 2017, Michael Carson, PhD, wrote a really interesting article entitled Why Profiling Serial Killers Can't Work. He suggested that you, you couldn't find a needle in a haystack with a pitchfork. That's how he phrased it. And that quite simply, profiling serial killers doesn't help catch them. Much of the work, uh, he argues, is based on interviews of serial killers and reviews of their murders simply to assist in pattern recognition with future cases. Now, in this part of the podcast, I'd like to discuss the phenomenon of serial killing and give examples of where forensic profiles have been formed and actually used in this manner to help catch others and, in fact, categorise others. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, usually in service of abnormal psychological gratification, with the murders taking place over more than a month and including a significant period of time between them. Now, debate exists about when or, or where this definition came from. Early research suggests about the 1930s. Now, one method of categorization is whether the offender is geographically stable, such as John Wayne Gacy, or geographically transient, like Ted Bundy, whose crimes I've referred to in another podcast. Now, geographically stable perpetrators who match Gacy's offender profile typically live in the same area for some time, they kill in the same or nearby area and dispose of bodies in the same area. Whereas transient killers like Bundy tend to travel often. They travel to confuse the police usually and in the main dispose of bodies in distant areas. Now, I'm not saying one size fits all, but this type of offender profile put together by forensic psychologists does ring true for many of the killers that I'm going to be referencing. Through forensic profiling, police have been able to categorise serial murderers into five distinct groups. There's the visionary killer, like uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr., or the Amityville killer, as he's more commonly known. Now, though, the visionary killer is thought to hear voices to kill, either the, the devil or a demon or God, for example. Now, in these cases, there's no staging of a crime scene. Jerry Brudos, the Oregon killer, is an example of a hedonistic murderer who kills for lust, thrill and or sexual gratification, where signs of torture may be evident and where it takes a long time to kill the victim. The mission killer has a conscious need to kill certain groups. They're not, not psychotic, but they have a duty, if you like, to rid the world of undesirables. They're often said to be a fine young man. Notice the word man there. They typically show pride in service to the community. Now, one name that rings a bell in this uh, case is Steve Wright, the Suffolk Strangler. So in 2006, uh, Steve Wright brutally murdered five prostitutes in a spate of killings that shocked the nation and saw him dubbed the Ipswich Ripper, which later became the, the Suffolk Strangler. We've got the power control killer, like the Night Stalker Richard Ramirez, who derives pleasure from controlling people, sexual pleasure in dominating others. 
they're thought of as being sociopathic, following their kind of own rules and norms. These are perpetrators that prolong killing for satisfaction and are usually quite hands-on. So, for example, uh, killed by strangulation, something quite physical. The category I find quite interesting is that of the comfort killer. So one who kills for profit, like in the cases of like insurance or an assassination fee, for example. They tend to kill a person of a close uh, relationship. These crime scenes tend to show a high degree of control, if you like. And unlike the other four categories, most of these comfort killers tend to be women. Like the black widow, Judy uh, Buonanno. Now, she killed her husband, her son and boyfriend. She was the third woman to be executed in the US after the reinstatement of the electric chair. Now, I find it interesting because historic forensic profiling suggested that serial murderers were male. White, 25 to 34 years old, roughly intelligent, charming, charismatic and knew how to manipulate. Now, studies of serial killing have allowed forensic scientists to go one step further and describe the evolution of a serial killer. So they describe how they might imagine a violent episode with, uh, say, books, magazines or movies depicting violence as a source of inspiration. And then they imagine acting out or practicing on uh, people they know, leading to serious thoughts of harming. Detachment then begins as they start to look at people as kind of objects and props and then comes the need for psychological relief, leading to them committing their actual first act. We can then start to profile their crime scene to give us more clues. So a blindfolded victim, perhaps hiding their identity, for the depersonalization of the victim, or just to terrorize the victim. Attacks of the face, again, depersonalizing the attack itself, or eliminating the shame factor. If we consider disposal of the body, lust, thrill and power control, these kind of killers dispose of their victims. Dumping is again a signal that the killing process is over. The killers, I guess you could say advertisement of the crime as such. Have weapons been used? That's a question to ask. Hands-on weapons, so straps, a hose, even hands, knives, handguns, hammers, they allow for touching of the victim and touch can degrade the victim in one sense. Dismemberment, it validates power and control, proving that the victim is nothing. Souvenirs can act as reminders of what happened, perhaps uh, prevent victim identification, stripping the victim, if you like, of identity. Trophies have some kind of value, a visual reward, reward serving as a sort of, sounds odd, but an aphrodisiac, maybe such as a part of a leg or part of a breast. You can even consider the use of duct tape. Psychologists have suggested that the use of duct tape indicates past prison time or even a possible link to special forces or military. Obviously, we can find cases where the evidence fits these profiles, but equally, we can find many more cases that are contradictory. I go back to the very first case I mentioned, that of Mary Bell. Would you have guessed it was a child from the description of the mutilation, from the horrific injuries that her victims had to endure? I certainly wouldn't have. Despite surveys in favour of criminal profiling, it's no longer used routinely in the UK. There are, however, many other countries who call upon forensic psychologists to help create offender profiles. 
So I guess having heard about the cases in this session, the main question is, what do you think about it? Thank you everyone for listening.